reading from uh, Psalm 95 this morning. It's in uh, your pew Bible, number 426. This psalm encourages and teaches us how to sing and worship with a holy reverence towards God. And uh, because he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. But he also loves us enough to give us a warning. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. This is the uh, point in our gathering where we as a, as a people open the scripture together. And uh, uh, my call this morning is to try to open the scripture, to teach, to proclaim good news to us from the scripture. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, what we do as we gather uh, by Sunday by Sunday is... Uh, we come under the teaching of, of God's word, which we believe the scriptures to be. And, um, and then we respond uh, to God's word to us in two ways. We respond with a time of what we call connection time, where we uh, greet one another, encourage one another, that we believe as a, as a church that it's not about you and your God or me and my God, it's about us and our God. And so we, um, that uh, following Jesus is a community effort, and so we respond with connection time. We take about 10 or 15 minutes to encourage one another, to meet with one another, embrace each other, and then we respond to that also with, after gathering the kids, with worship and praise, thanksgiving to, for, to God for what he has taught us. We're in the middle of uh, a sermon series through the season of Lent leading up to Easter weekend next week um, that we're calling Habits of Grace which uh, really are, is a, a series explaining the spiritual disciplines of following Jesus. What are those practices in our lives that, uh, that God calls us to, to follow Jesus, to aid in our worship of Him and our relationship of Him? We, um, th- these are really habits of grace. They are they're means of grace. Some old theologians would call them means of grace. The ways in which God's grace can invade our lives and make changes in our lives, not only um, to our circumstances, but to our character as well. And so, um, as Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. 
Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And so the effort and the discipline of these spiritual disciplines, the result of this work, the result of this effort, isn't to kind of try to, you know, if, if your life is a boat, to give you a set of oars to say, here, move forward to, towards God. But rather, here's, here's the rope, raise the sail, and God's Spirit blows into those sails, and you move along uh, towards, towards God. The spiritual disciplines are meant to be a bridge between what we believe and our behavior, between our belief and our behavior, between what we, th- what we believe to be true about the gospel of Jesus and, and, and the scriptures, and then our character, our practical character as we uh, live that out day by day. You know, you've probably heard the, the charge that you know, very often is true. You know, Christians are such hypocrites. You know, there's more problems inside the church than outside the church. You know, there's more gossiping in the church than outside. There's more backbiting. There's more uh, whatever. And in some, case, in some sense, that is true. And what people are reacting to is this disconnect between the character and the beliefs. That, that as followers of Jesus, we believe some things to be true about morality. We, we believe some things to be true as, as to the way to live. We believe these things to be true about what God has said about us and to us. And what he's called us to. And then there's a disconnect between that and how we actually live. And that disconnect is disconcerting. And that disconnect casts doubt on our belief, right? Now, why is that? Why is there this disconnect? Well, um, and between, you know, why does behavior of followers of Jesus sometimes not all that different from those who aren't followers of Jesus? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. There's the reason of... You know, we believe that uh, all men and women, boys and girls, are created in the image of God. And so, uh, well, well, that image of God in us, the character, the imprint, the fingerprint of God on us has been marred by sin. It's not totally marred. And so we would expect to find some good in people who aren't following Jesus. It's not surprising to us that people are generous and kind and thoughtful, honest, for example. So that, that doesn't shock us. Secondly... Followers of Jesus, are, you know, our confession isn't that, uh, that we're awesome. Our confession is that we're not awesome. Our confession is that we actually need Jesus. We need a Savior because we haven't lived up to what God's call on us. So in some sense, it, it's not surprising that there, is, um, you know, that, that, that there is this disconnect between what we believe and how we behave. And yet, the life of Christ in us, that as we say yes to Jesus, as we receive his, his pardon, as we receive his relationship, we receive his love and enter into relationship with him through Christ, that the life of Jesus actually is, is transformative in us, that, it, that our character is slowly changed. And it's through these disciplines that our character is changed, that there is less and less of a disconnect between our belief and our behavior. It's kind of like, you know, when, they're, when uh, construction crews are building a new road, and, uh, and there's, you know, uh, massive boulders. Maybe, you know, picture if you ever drive up northern Ontario, like as they're expanding Highway 69 or Highway 11, right, in, in the, the 400. And there's these massive boulders that, that, uh, yeah, that they need to have moved. What do they do? They don't just take some dynamite and, you know, just push it up beside the boulder and set it off. You know, if you do that, if you push some dynamite up, up beside the boulder and blow it up, you know, little, you might shear off the face of that, of that boulder, but the, the massive rock is still there. What they do, rather, is they, take, is they drill down into the center. 
They put the dynamite in the center and set off the explosion and break it up from the core. That's what these disciplines are like, is, is ways in which God's grace can drill down into the center of our rock-like hearts and actually change some things, actually blow some stuff up in our lives and make real and lasting change in us. So that's, uh, that's where we are as a church. That's what, what we've been talking about. Part of that, um, this series has been this grace initiative, which cards at the front, where many of us have been fasting and praying for our friends, that God's saving and renewing grace would break into their lives. We're inviting many of them to Easter, to worship here at Easter, to hear the good news of Jesus in this corporate setting. And so uh, we're reminding you of that, hoping that you're um, following Jesus and responding to God's call in this way as well, as we fast and pray for our friends to come and know God's grace as well. So this morning, um, we're talking about the last of the, of the disciplines that we're going to talk about in this series. There's, there's way more. We, we could probably have a 30-week series, no problem, on all kinds of different practices, disciplines of uh, the Christian life. But we're talking about worship this morning. What is worship? My favorite quote on uh, de- my favorite definition of what worship is, I got this hanging in my office, is a quote by William Temple, where he says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of our conscience by His holiness. It's the nourishment of our mind by His truth. It's the purifying of imagination by His beauty. The opening of our hearts to His love. The surrender of our will to His purposes. All of that gathered up in adoration. That's a meaty quote, one probably worth looking at a couple of times. It's the submission of all of our nature, all of who we are. It's a submission of all of who we are to God. How do we do that? It's, he quickens our conscience. He gives life into our conscience by his holiness. As we see his holiness, we see that we're not, we don't measure up to that. We see his purity. It's the nourishment of our mind with his truth. He says some things to us that are true and right and good. It's the purifying of our imagination by his beauty. What we long for, what we desire, gets captured by the beauty of Jesus. It's the opening of our hearts to his love, to receive his love and his grace again into our lives. And as we surrender our will to his purpose, So we begin to follow after him. All of that gathered up in adoration. That is what worship is. Worship is ascribing or or giving ultimate value to an object. What we're advocating, so we're clear this morning, we're advocating that that object be God, Jesus, that we worship God, we worship Jesus. So it's, it's this giving, this ascribing, counting, Something or someone of ultimate value. And engaging your mind and your, your emotions, your will, your body, as you do so. It's this saying, this thing or, or this idea or this person is ultimately valuable. Is the most valuable thing in my life, in this universe. This is what I'm going to live for. This, this, is, this is what it's all about. That when... When my priorities 
kind of come into, into conflict with each other. This one, this priority is going to trump, trump the decision every time. This is ultimately valuable to me. And so I worship it. That's this giving of ultimate value to it. And then we engage our hearts, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies. All of who we are, we engage our whole person in that ascribing a value to something. Psalm 95, which Jake read for us. Shout and sing for joy. Come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Shout for joy. Emotions are involved. Our body, our voices are involved. Let us kneel down. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord. Our, 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 our will, our submitting of our will to him. And he talks about verse 7, where he's our shepherd. And if we'll hear his voice, there's an understanding. Our mind is involved in worship. Worship is, is, is taking the truth of who God is and drilling that down into our hearts, settling in on it, thinking on it, chewing on it, meditating on it, taking the truth of who God is down into our heart and letting it change us. For the Lord is the great God. For the Lord is our shepherd. Why do we worship? For he is the great God. He's the king of above all gods. He is our shepherd. Worship is this focusing on God, a focus on him, and then responding to him. Focusing on the excellencies of God, if you will. On, on the greatness of who he is and the perfections of his character, that he's perfect in his patience, that he's perfect and, and excellent in every way, in his kindness, in his compassion, in his majesty, in his greatness, in his purity. That in every way he is excellent. And then we focus in that until that, that, that our whole life explodes with a life-changing joy. Worship is a, is a looking out at this world and saying, the God who made it all, the God who spoke it into existence, has adopted me as his child. He's taken me and he's loved me and he's, he's spoken favor over me. He's received me. He's forgiven my sins. Even though, even though I've declared war on him and fired the first shot, he's, 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 he's made a peace agreement. He's brought peace between us. Even though I've been in rebellion, he's, he's brought me near. Even though I've run away, Oh, that's amazing. My life might be falling to pieces, but God is for me and he's promised me good. And so I will serve him. I will praise him. I will exalt him. In the Bible, there's a list of 10. Thou shalt and thou shalt nots. We call them the 10 commandments, right? Many of us knew them. Some of us grew up in, with them on the wall in our schools. Right? The Ten Commandments. Do you know what the first one is? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Worship me, not something else or someone else. God's saying the first commandment is that you worship me and not something else. You see, the reality is, is that all of us are worshipers. We're all worshiping something. We're all giving ultimate value to at least one thing. Right? There's one thing that trumps everything else in our lives, and that's the object of our worship. 
There's one person, there's one relationship, there's one value. Whether it be money, whether it be success, whether it be fame, whether it be power. There's one thing. Whether it's the approval of other people, whether, whatever it is, there's one thing for us. We're all worshiping something. And Martin Luther actually, he's, he made the insight that when you break one of the other Ten Commandments, one of the other nine, I guess, you're doing so because you've broken the first. The, the, reason you, the reason you break the commandment, you shall not lie, the reason you lie is because you have another God besides God. The reason that you can't be honest in those moments or choosing not to be honest is because something is more valuable to you. Something is more worthy to you, whether it be your own reputation, whether it be the approval of this other person. But whatever it is, I need to save face or I need to save a buck. And so I'm going to lie. And so something is more valuable to you, and that's why you lie. And and actually, and he goes through, Martin Luther goes through all of the other nine commandments and says, if you're breaking any one of those, these nine, it's because you're breaking the first one. It's because something else is more valuable to you than God. Everyone worships. Everyone ascribes value. You know where the word worship comes from? It comes from the old English, and it, it, it used to be two words, worth, shape. Worth, shape. To ascribe worth to something and be shaped by that worth. To be shaped by the worth of something, by the value of something. That when we actually worship something, that thing then ends up changing us into its image. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. If you're worshiping money, if you're worshiping power, if you're worshiping uh, some other false god, some idol in your life, you're going to actually become more and more like that thing. Because, you see, our love, we, our worship is not only follows our love, it's, it's shaped by our love. Our practices, we've been learning that in this series, that, that um, our, what we actually do, we do what we do because we love what we love, and then what those actions, those habits, those disciplines actually then turn back and actually change what we love even more. They have a shaping effect on us. What you continue, you are what you continually do, right? That's, that's, a, that's a truism. That happens, that works. That our love um, follows our actions and is directed by our actions. So our love both directs our actions and is shaped by our actions. And it's the same with our worship. What do you daydream about? What your, when you have nothing else on your mind, what does your mind go to effortlessly? Good chance that that's the object of your worship. How could I make more money? How could I get this person to like me? It's treasuring. That daydreaming is a treasuring and ascribing a value. This is what I really want. And that's probably the object of your worship. All right, that's what worship is. Worship is this ascribing of value to someone or something, engaging your whole being, your mind, your will, your emotions, your heart, your body, in, in, in that. So how do we worship? How do we worship? Well, the scriptures are clear. We worship privately and corporately. We worship alone and together. We worship alone 
Um, all day long, you're worshiping something. We say here around here at Cornerstone, sometimes our worship is our lifestyle. That your actions, your service, are actually can be acts of worship. Your work can be an act of worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're going to talk more about this in, in the coming months um, or within the next year as we're, we're going to be doing a series on work and the, uh, the uh, integration of faith and work. But I want to talk in more, some more detail about corporate worship this morning. I want to give a bit of a lesson. I'm going to give, do some teaching on corporate worship. This, if you're into taking notes, this will be a note-taking uh, kind of thing, possibly for you. But corporate worship, what, how do we worship corporately? How do we worship together? Why do we do what we do here on Sunday mornings? Why is it important? How do we choose what we do and what we don't do? Those are the kinds of questions that I want to talk about this morning. Well, the scriptures are clear that um, as we talk about worshiping God, we need to do so on his terms. That he's actually uh, given some prescriptions. He's actually given some instructions, some commands, if you will, on corporate worship, on worship. That we don't get to choose how we worship God in many ways. He's told us how it is we're to worship him. The Old Testament, for example, is filled with examples of people saying, eh, you know what, I think I'm going to worship God this way. Leviticus uh, chapter 10, there's a story of uh, some guys that brought what they call strange fire uh, into, the, uh, into the altar. So uh, what they're saying is, well, I don't think, I know God said we should do it this way, but I don't think God would really mind if we took some of these pagan practices and kind of incorporated them in to the worship of the God of Israel. And the God of Israel kind of minded because he killed them. If you want to get kind of freaked out uh, tonight before bed, read Ezekiel chapters 8 and 9. Ezekiel's chapters 8 and 9. Ezekiel chapter 8 is all about the ways in which the people of God, God's listing out all the ways in which the, the people worshipped in unacceptable ways to him. And then chapter 9, he goes and lists all of the ways in which he's going to kill them because of that. It's, it's, it's frightening. And so as leaders in the church, we, pastors and elders, we have the responsibility to make sure that our gatherings, our corporate worship gatherings, are actually worshiping God in the way in which he's instructed us to do so. That we make sure to include the things that he instructs us to include, to forbid the things that he instructs us to forbid. So for example, uh, a great... Uh, uh, chapter on the scripture about this would be 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 has a number of principles for corporate worship. For example, Paul is writing to the Corinthians church and he says that uh, when you gather for worship, make sure it's understandable. Make sure that everyone, that people can understand. That's why we aim to talk in kind of street level English in our services. Sometimes, because we're Christians, we need to use Christian words. And um, because those are words that are in the scripture, uh, words that really aren't used anywhere else. And so what we'll try to do then is we'll try to explain what those words mean because we want to make sure that it's understandable. 
Right? There used to be, there were times when the church would worship in Latin, even though the people spoke English. And so people would come, and they wouldn't really understand anything what's going on. They were just coming. Paul would say, no, the, the worship gathering needs to be understandable, comprehensible. So we try to speak in the vernacular. We try to sing songs that have words that are in the vernacular so that we can understand, so we can worship with understanding. Paul says that we need to be seeker-sensible, that we need to understand that when we gather for worship, that there are people who are here who aren't right now followers of Jesus. And I know that's true. Even in this moment right now, we love the fact that you're here. There's every week as we gather here, there are people here who are kind of on the journey of exploring. They're kind of kicking the tires on, on Jesus, window shopping the Christian faith. And we love that you're here. But we need to, and we, what we want to do as leaders in the church is speak as though you are here and act like you are here and not make the assumption that um, everyone here believes exactly as we believe, that everyone here is, is behaving exactly how we want to behave. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that corporate worship, that we need to be unselfish as we worship, that we shouldn't be a distraction to one another. He says, when you come, let all things be done for the building up of the church. Now, you and I may have some preferences when it comes to, court, to worship, and this is how I like to worship God, and, and that's fine and great. But if that preference that you have is a, is a distraction so that you actually are a stumbling block for other people to engage in worship, if you, wanna, if you love to you know, kind of flop around on the floor like a fish on a dock, that's fine. Just don't do it here. Do it at home. Go home, close your, close your door, close the blinds, and do what you want to do. If you want to, you know, if you want to fly some flags or tap a tambourine, God bless you. Just don't do it here because you're going to be a distraction. And, you know, maybe you love to, to, to worship God by blowing a horn. That's fine. Just don't bring the horn here. We will confiscate it. Okay? <laughs> do it at home. So we want to be a corporate, we want to be one body together in worship. That's, that's our aim as we worship. And he says let, it should be orderly. He says let everything be done in, in order, in an orderly way. Now the New Testament also has not only these principles of our corporate worship, they also have um, elements that should be, that need to be in our corporate worship gatherings as a regular practice. Um, so Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor, first, second Timothy four, he says, preach the word that the, that as, as a church, that's what one of our convictions is that we hold the scripture in high regard. And so we, as a church want to be a church that preaches the scripture, that that's actually a central piece. A main piece in our gathering is to hear from God and a proclamation of what he has said in the scripture. What we aim to do is not preach my, you know, my personal philosophy, not my, you know, um, pet peeves or my uh, uh, preferences. I want to preach the word. I want to preach God's word. And we want to come together under the scripture to hear from him. First Corinthians 11 makes clear that a regular occurrence among followers of Jesus should be the Lord's Supper, communion, where, where we celebrate, where we remember Jesus' birth, or birth, death, 
the other end, and um, where we celebrate Jesus' death by taking bread and wine together. First Timothy 2 says that prayer for all kinds of people should be part of our gatherings. He says in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about the giving and, and the gifts of tithes and offerings in our worship. In Colossians 3.16, as in hundreds of other places in the Scripture, says that we should be singing together. So these things are all commanded by God, instructions for Him. One of the, one of the great chapters on uh, corporate worship, public worship, is Deuteronomy chapter 12, where it's a full list of God saying, do worship me like this, don't worship me like that, do worship me like this, worship like this, but don't worship like that. And it goes on and on and on. So God, the Lord, has given us instructions of things that he wants included, ways in which he wants it done and not done. And so um, there are ways in which that these elements of worship that need to be included. There's also unacceptable ways. And so second commandment, for example, don't make any images of God. And so, so we, you won't see here pictures of God the Father, depictions of God the Father. Now Jesus came, the, God the Son came, took on flesh, became a human person. So it's not unacceptable to have a picture of what he may have looked like while on earth. The Holy Spirit came down in the image of a dove, and so sometimes we'll have a picture of a dove, but we're not saying that dove, that's what the Holy Spirit looks like, but it's a biblical image. It says, don't make pictures of God the Father. So you won't see that. We won't, we won't, we won't be a part of interfaith worship. We'll have interfaith friends. We'll have Buddhist, Sikh, Muslim, agnostic, atheist friends, but we won't We won't ask a Buddhist speaker to preach here. We won't have interfaith worship. Pray to Allah? No thanks. Right? Okay, so there's there's boundaries that God has set up. But all of this, there's all kinds of questions that can be raised about our corporate worship. All kinds of questions. What time should our gathering be? Does it have to be in the morning or could it be in the evening? Can we have one on Sunday or should we have two on Sunday? Or should we have three? How long should our services be? How long should the sermon be? What kind of music should we use? Is it okay to use instruments or not? Electricity is not mentioned in the Bible. Is it okay that we have electricity in here? Right? Can we do announcements? Right? There's no, there's no mention of announcement time. There's no instruction. When you, when you gather, make sure that there's an announcement time. So should we shoot anyone who comes up here to do announcements? Should the pastor wear a robe or a tie? Do we have to listen to him if, he, God forbid, he wear jeans? Because of these kinds of questions, kind of two schools of thought have emerged in the Christian faith. Two schools of thought have emerged, both you can hold to either one of these and love Jesus. Let's be clear on that, all right? You can, you can hold to either one of these schools of thought and be a faithful follower of Jesus. And we will not shoot you for doing it, for holding it. So one school of thought is called the normative principle. I call it the green light approach. The normative principle to corporate worship would say um, you need to include the elements of, that Scripture commands. So preach the word, sing songs, you know, have offering, do the Lord's Supper. 
So you need to include the elements of Scripture's commands. And you can, you may include others as long as they're not prohibited in Scripture. So green light until you get a red light in the Scripture. Green means go, red means stop, right? So it's green light. You can include, you have to include what the Scripture tells you to include. And you have freedom to include other things as long as the Scripture doesn't prohibit it. That's the normative principle, the green light approach. The red light approach is called the regulative principle, which says it's, it's red light until the scripture says green. Until the scripture says go, you stop. So the scripture says preach the word, so preach the word. Scripture says sing, so sing. Scripture says do the Lord's Supper, so do the Lord's Supper. But drama, no, drama's not mentioned, so not acceptable. Okay, so that's kind of the two schools of thought when it comes to corporate worship and how to answer a lot of these kinds of questions especially with respects to which elements um, of worship would you include in your, um, in, your, in your gatherings. All right? Regulative, normative. Million-dollar question is where does Cornerstone land on this? Where do we land on this? Well, let me tell you a couple of the strengths of what we believe that would be some strengths of the normative principle, the green light approach is that the, uh, one of the strengths of the normative approach is that it sees biblical principles but allows flexibility for methods. It allows flexibility for the methods in which you use. You see, the scripture is uh, what we, we believe God's word to all mankind, all humanity, for all times. And so it's speaking across cultures. It's speaking across time periods. And so, you know, sing to the Lord. Well, what song? How many times should we sing it? What instrument should we use? It, the normative approach really allows for flexibility of, uh, of methods, you know? And so we, you don't read, you know, the scripture says, sing to him on the harp, right? And so the regulative principle would say, well, you better have a harp when you sing this song. Um, whereas I think the normative approach allows for flexibility according to culture. So it allows for cultural contextualization, where you can adapt the style of the church gathering to fit the culture in which you, you are. Um, for example, when do we start? When do we start our gathering? We start at 10.02, because that's when you come. Um, I'm going to talk about that sometime. I keep kind of sliding that one in, but I mean, it's actually important that you hear maybe 10, 5, 10 minutes before, and there's some good reasons why. But in many cultures, you start when you, everyone shows up. In fact, in most places in the world where there's followers of Jesus, when does their gathering start? When everyone gets there. They don't really even set a time, or maybe they do set a time, but it really means nothing, even more so than here. Right? I remember, I remember in, uh, being in Uruguay, and, and we, we, the service was there, and we got there when it was supposed to start, and, and no one was there. And, you know, two hours later, people are still coming in, and it, we start when, we, when everyone gets there. If we did that, we'd never start. Right? You've got to have a time. That's a cultural thing. So that, I think, the normative principle kind of allows for that kind of flexibility, contextualization. I, I also I appreciate the, one of the strengths of the normative principle is that it treats gathered and scattered worship in the same way, right? Why would you treat one hour of the week 
you know, with the red light approach. But the 167 other hours in the week, you know, you're really treating like the green light approach. It doesn't say to brush your teeth in Scripture, and yet we're, we're not paralyzed by fear of we're picking up a toothbrush, right? Pants aren't mentioned in the Bible. It's going to be a bad day, right? So it, the normative approach really teaches gathered and scattered worship in the same way. There are weaknesses to the normative principle. It can easily allow too much. You can easily, a syncretism, where, which means that where you, you adopt from the culture the, the pagan practices of the culture, the anti-Christian cult practices of the culture, and bring that in. in, a, in a, it easily allows that. One, of the, one, if I could be a critique, and this is somewhat true of us, where we make our enjoyment the aim instead of God's pleasure. And we become critics. And I didn't really like the worship today. It's kind of loud, kind of pitchy, kind of like, um, didn't really like that song. Sermon wasn't really good. He started off all right, but didn't stick the landing, right? Like, you, we, we become critics, and we, we begin to think, you know, I'm going to just critique about this worship gathering and how, how I liked it. And that becomes really the, the determining factor. Did I like what was going on on the stage? Did I like the show? Did I like, did people come in? And, and, and make me feel happy. And our focus then becomes on, on our enjoyment instead of God's pleasure and God's glory, God's honor. So that's one of the weaknesses where we can easily make our enjoyment the aim and not God's pleasure. Another weakness of the normative principle is that optional elements can then push out the required elements easily. Yeah, we're not going to preach, but we're going to do drama this week. Right? I'm not bent out of shape that we don't have a drama team. But if you are like really into drama, come talk to us. We may include it from time to time. But not at the expense of those required elements. But we're really not bent out of shape that we don't have a drama team. So we have a lot of freedom, but we don't use it all. So where does Cornerstone land? I'd say we land theologically on the green light, but we act as if there's a red light. Most of the time. We have lots of freedom. We're keeping that in the back pocket. We want, may want to pull it out every once in a while. But we're acting like the, green, the, the red light principle where these commanded, instructed elements of our worship, those, those take our front and center for us. And every once in a while we pull out some things because we, there is freedom, we believe. So we would land on the, on the normative, but we would act almost regulative most of the time. Hope that makes sense. I want to just uh, conclude with just uh, a, a few thoughts about singing, because I like to dive into murky, troubled waters. <laughs> singing, in fact, is often synonymous with worship. Right? We talk about what what was the worship like on su- Sunday. We're talking about the music, right? Instead of the whole gathering. Really, the whole gathering is meant to be a time of worship, but singing. Singing is commanded hundreds of times in the scriptures. We've read several of them already today. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing joyfully to the Lord. Those are not, uh, those are not suggestions. Those are instructions. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. Music, we know, is powerful. Music is powerful. We know, we know from um, regimes like the Nazis... Uh, 
that in order to gain control of a culture, you gain control of the music. Once you gain control of the music, you gain control of the culture. Music is powerful. Music motivates you. Music will make you walk through a wall. Movies would suck without music. Without the soundtrack, they would be terrible. Honestly, they'd be terrible without the soundtrack. Music stirs our emotions. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a well-known preacher in London, England. Uh, His church, Westminster Chapel, was close to the Thames, Thames River. And he tells the story of one time a man had come to the Thames to throw himself in, to commit suicide, to kill himself. But he heard the music from Westminster Chapel emanating out. And the beauty of the music said there is something more. There is hope. The, the music convinced him. And he came and he gave his life to Christ and his life turned around. Music is a witness to the reality that life is not random, that life is not an accident, that there is a God of love, joy, and peace behind it all. As prep, in prepping for this week, I read many skeptics who would say, I don't believe there is a God, but listening to John Coltrane play I had a sense of the divine. They couldn't get away from it. As you listen to skillful, beautiful music, there is a sense that there is a God. These skeptics, these hardcore skeptics who say there is no God, have a sense of the divine, even listening to music. Bono says, words and music did for me what solid argumentation could never do. They introduced me to God. Not a belief in God, but more of an experiential sense of God. Music is powerful. And you, as a follower of Jesus, are instructed to sing to him. You say, well, I can't sing. Let me tell you, you sing better than me. If you have ever stood next to me during one of our worship times, you know this is true. I'm the worst singer in the room. But you can make a joyful noise to God and be changed by music. You will be changed by the songs more than the sermon. That's true. You'll be changed more by the songs than by the sermon. Job 38, God is, is, is this incredible chapter in the scripture. Job, God is kind of questioning Job. He says, would you answer me a few questions, Job? You've been asking me all kinds of questions. Would you answer a few of mine? He says, where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you, right, when I tied, when I tied Orion's belt? And where were you when I launched the stars into space? Where were you when I made everything? He says, when I made everything, the angels were singing for joy. The stars in heavens were dancing and singing for joy. God's saying at creation, when he made it all, there was music. When your heart is working right, you will sing. Ephesians 5 says, when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll sing. When your heart is alive to the things of God, the song in you cannot be stopped and you will sing. C.S. Lewis says you praise what you love because you love it, but also in order to love it. You enjoy. The enjoyment of someone or something is not complete until you praise it. We praise someone or something because we love it, but we actually love it more in the praising of it. We're changed by the song. All creation was singing when God was forming the earth. But as we know, sin has invaded our world. And Romans 8 tells us now that all of creation is groaning. Like in childbirth. Which is not a pretty song. And maybe you're groaning more than you're singing. Maybe you don't have anything you want to sing 
about because there are too many problems in your life. Maybe there's more groaning than singing for joy. I want to I point out a beautiful verse to you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Look this up when you go home. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so Jesus says, and he quotes Psalm 22. Listen to this. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 about singing praises over us and with us to our God. You know, there was another time where Jesus quoted Psalm 22. The beginning of Psalm 22 is all groaning and no singing. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My hands and my feet are pierced and they divide my garments. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 as he died on the cross and took the groaning of all creation on himself and got the silence of heaven. Jesus experienced the groaning for us. And what I want us to see this morning is that that groaning of creation will actually cease. That there is a coming, a day where music will return to our world in perfection. Did you hear it in Psalm 96, the passage I opened with this morning? The trees of the forest will sing for joy. Isaiah 55 says that the mountains and the hills will burst into song. Music was present at creation, and we live in a time of much groaning, much anguish, but music will return. The trees of the forest will clap their hands and sing for joy. And we too will sing a new song in the new heavens and the new earth. When you focus on him, when you focus on Jesus, who took the groaning, who took the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And gets to the, I will sing for joy and your praises for us. You too can have a new song birthed in you. And worship, this ascribing of ultimate value to what is ultimately valuable, will be the will be the mark will be the habit of your life would you join me in prayer